Turn in whatever uh, mode of Bible you have to the Gospel of Matthew. We've gone through the genealogy and used the genealogy as a sort of a launching pad to wander around the Old Testament a bit because the genealogies wander around the Old Testament a bit. And we've come back to Matthew itself. Matthew opens with, of course, a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. He pursues that genealogy down through verse 16, in which he culminates that genealogy with the enumeration of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And we've seen, and we just want to be clear, and always remember this, brothers and sisters, that The Gospels never leave any question as to the identity of Jesus from their opening statements. You don't have to sort of read for two, three, four, five chapters to try to figure out, well, you know, who is this Jesus? Um, They don't sort of gradually unfold him to you until, you know, at some point halfway through you go, oh, this is Jesus who's the Messiah. Um, This is what they start with. This is what they begin with. They don't uh, go through in some an apologetic way, start working through logic and this and that so that you intellectually arrive that Jesus is the Messiah. They declare and proclaim Jesus the Messiah from the beginning, and that is uh, a lesson for us in witnessing. Jesus is Messiah. We are not going to argue the world into that. It's the fact and reality that God has come into the world. <clears throat> and all of the Gospels though they differ in their prologues and opening statements, they all talk about the Messiah and they all present Jesus as the eternal son. He is both human and divine, whether it's by a conception, a virgin conception and a birth, or whether it's by a declaration or whether it's by reaching back past creation into eternity past and bringing forward the word. Uh, Jesus is seen clearly and presented most specifically and most gloriously as the human divine person. Now Matthew in verse 18, after he's done with his genealogy, he says, I want to explain now this birth that we arrived at at the end of this genealogy. The birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, uh, he's very clear, he wants to be very clear that this is his mother and this is not his father. Joseph is not his father. They had not come together and that she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. He's crystal clear on the source of this pregnancy. It's the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit supplied the 23 chromosomes that a normal male would in the normal process of procreation. Um, Jesus is a unique divine person. He is a blend of these elements fully integrated as a single person to be the Son of God. Now, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, Joseph is a good man. This, this finding out that his wife is pregnant, and it certainly wasn't by him, um, and he knew that, and he was clear about that. <clears throat> this was going to be turmoil for him. Uh, this would be a moral disaster for him. He's an upright man, and he had a lot of uh, concerns, a lot of issues, and he was a good man. He did not want to 
um, have her be publicly disgraced. So he thought and thought and thought how to do it, and he started planning, well, I'm just going to give her this bill of divorcement provided for in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and send her away secretly. But as the proverb says, the man, the man's plan, a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Here, Joseph was looking for direction from the Lord, and he gets it. He gets a direction that he could never have imagined. Uh, an angel appears to him in a dream, and in this dream, the angel says to him what the angel had already said to uh, Mary many months before. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Take her into your home. <clears throat> and for the child who has been conceived in her is of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit. Again, a second declaration, one by the narrator Matthew just stating it, the other one by an angel from heaven. Um, this conception is by the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Um, <clears throat> he has an ultimate father, and that ultimate father has given us a name. And that name is Jesus. Again, Jesus is uh, a Latinized version of a Hellenized version of a uh, modified version of Joshua or Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation. It means God will certainly save because he's going to save his people from their sins. And as that one fellow gave the definition, I'll, I hope I never forget it. Salvation is to be emancipated from the greatest evil. It is the guilt and pollution and power and punishment of sin. And to be placed in the possession of the greatest good. Freedom, life, access to God, fellowship with God, eternal life and glory. And this name, Jesus, Savior, is the name God has chosen to forever designate his son. It's the name we should always call upon always hold out, always trust in, always think of first, because we're sinners. And the first, when we, we're kind of like Isaiah, when, when God starts showing up in our life, what starts showing up with us? Oh, I'm wonderful, I'm, I'm, I'm just thrilled. Man, I've been doing so great as a Christian. God's just so happy to see me. It's like, no, in the light of God's holiness, we start seeing more and more, I need that name, Jesus, Savior, save me from my sin. Now Matthew said, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And this is Matthew's first, what they call formula quotation. That is, it's a quotation uh, from the Old Testament that has a sort of formulaic format to it. There are at least 10 of them. And it's just, uh, <clears throat> there's other non-formula quotations, a lot of echoes, allusions, and other terminology. But there are at least 10 of these real formal statements they all have this pattern. They all say um, something's going to be fulfilled. Fulfillment is part of the pattern. What's going to be fulfilled is what has been spoken by the Lord. There is this view that Old Testament scripture is what was coming out of the mouth of God, spoken, comes from his lips. And it's always through the agency of a prophet, uh, a known prophet, Isaiah being the most quoted, Jeremiah is there mentioned. So we arrive this morning, Matthew 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Let's just pray one more time and ask the Lord to be <clears throat> with each one of us here this morning. Heavenly Father, these words, they're in your, they are in your word. The Holy Spirit wrote them. 
They reflect the very history that we're reading, the very narrative that happened. And Lord, you still must smile, though, whenever you gaze upon these words, whenever these words come up among your saints. It still must thrill your heart to fill souls. that This is the point at which your son actually entered into the world. That eternal purpose to save human beings by Jesus Christ unto eternal glory, that purpose is now being fulfilled. And all those places where we read, where the apostle will say something like, which was purposed in eternity, but now is manifested. Here's when it's happening. It's now being manifested. Lord, you must look back on that and still smile, still be full to the brim. And so, Lord, we ask that you would this morning fill our hearts full to the brim. That we would go away from your word this morning, not from a preacher. Preachers come and go, but your word stays around forever. We would come away from your word, Lord, just uh, more confirmed, more affirmed, uh, richer in our understanding and grasp, and uh, deeper in our love and recognition and faith and hope in Jesus because that's what these things are for. And Lord, only you can produce that in a human heart. I can't. Books can't. Lord, only you can. Salvation comes from you. It's of the Lord. It's not of men. And so, Lord, we just pray this morning you would show your great mercy, because that's, that's all we can ask for is mercy, and your great grace, and show your great love, and shed these things abroad in our heart by your Holy Spirit. Enable me, Lord, to speak them when we get to a few tedious things. Lord, enable me to be clear about them. Give us attentive minds and hearts. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So now we get to the actual quote. The quote is from Isaiah 7.14. Interesting chapter. We may or may not, I don't know yet, uh, go through that chapter. The thing about going through the chapters of the prophets is you start to say, oh, okay, well, we'll just, you know, expound chapter, four, uh, chapter 7 of Isaiah and get to the passage. And then you start going, well, in order to understand the passage, you have to have all this background. And then, well, to get the background, you've got to know history. You've got to go names. You've got to know what was going on. And so it becomes far more complex than when you just think, oh, we'll just, you know, teach, preach through the passage. So we'll see what happens. Maybe pray, ask the Lord to give me some uh, clarity on what to do with that. But this morning, we're just going to be looking at this quote from Isaiah as Matthew presents it to us. So the first thing we have, which is a reflection of what is in Isaiah 7.14, is this word, behold. Now, in normal speech, do you use this word? Do you, you know, go and say, hey, Gwen, behold, you should, you know... Uh, come to the dinner table because I made. I just got the instant pots finished here, um, you know. Or you know, behold, you know, Gwen, I'm I'm going to work or things like that. I mean, they're just that's just not normal speech, at least not for y'all. I may be old enough to think that was normal, but um, <clears throat> it's not for y'all. It's not for the average person. And so this behold, we read it a lot of times. I think in scripture, depending on our translation, and we tend to start overlooking it. It just sort of is sort of a nice poetic entry point or something. And I think we need to really understand that in this verse, and by the way, this is going to be one of the most debated passages in the history of the gospel. It's going to be one of the most debated passages and fought over passages in the history of the gospel because Satan doesn't want to hear this passage. He doesn't want this passage to say what it says. 
And he'll do that with every passage in the Bible, but there's a few he knows that are real, like, just, they're just so strategic that he's going to just put all of his confusion around it that he possibly can. And the way he brings confusion is he'll take a clear and simple passage such as this one, and he'll ask so many hard questions about it and, and just, you know, debate it and be skeptical about it and all these other things, and he'll have his little emissaries doing that, is that the passage that is simple and clear all of a sudden becomes confusing uh, simply because he's just thrown these big smoke bombs on it of all of his doubts and skepticism. And so as we look at this passage, we want to check every word out because every word has some significance. And here the word behold is important <clears throat> because in the chapter 7, I keep wanting to say 14, it's Isaiah seven fourteen. Uh, in chapter 7 of Isaiah, um, the prophecy that this is quoted from was no small event. There's King Ahaz, who was a bad king, and he was about to get Israel all embroiled in more political machinations, and instead of trusting in God, he was going to go and try to do his political manipulations with the king of Assyria. And Isaiah comes to stop him, and Isaiah says, okay, you know, you, you need to just trust God in this battle that you're having with uh, Syria and northern Israel. So what do, you, what do you want from God? Tell God a sign that you want. And Isaiah phrases it. He says, ask for a sign. God is really through Isaiah saying, Ahaz, you're a wicked king, but I'll give you a sign if you want one, that if you'll trust me, I'll take care of you. And he says, ask it whether it's in heaven above or on earth beneath. It's like, don't ask for some petty thing. Ask for something big. All right? And then Ahaz says, nah, nah, I don't want to trouble you. That was his excuse. I'm not going to tempt God, as it were. <laughs> it's, kinda, it's a very interesting response that he gives. But he's not going to tempt God. And he says, I'm not going to tempt God. I'm not going to ask for a sign. Well, God says, okay, well, then I'm going to give you a sign. So think about it. Here is God asking this wicked king to to put forth a sign that God will do in order to demonstrate to him that you can trust him. And the wicked king just covers his unbelief with religious, you know, humility, false religious humility. And God says, I'll come up with one. So what kind of sign do you think God's going to come up with? Think he's going to come up with something like little? Medium, insignificant? Or do you think God comes up with something big? Something startling, something unexpected, something extremely out of the norm. Something that you couldn't question whether it was truly a sign or not. You know, a lot of times things will happen in our lives and we say, well, you know, the Lord did this in my life, and, well, you don't have a specific recognition that God did it. You just have this general recognition. God says he's going to take care of us. He's taking care of me, and so I'm going to attribute it to the Lord. But that's kind of general. That's just kind of, you know, 
in the, in the, the spectrum of life, just happening, normal things. This is something out of the spectrum. This is something abnormal. And so that's what this word behold means, and it introduces something God is going to do that should be seen as very unusual and very out of the norm. Behold, God's going to do something big. And he says, behold, the virgin shall be with child. So we're not very far this morning to where we come across the technical debate point. And I've been trying to figure out for weeks how to present this. And uh, so I think I have something that's helpful. If it's not helpful, I made my best try. If it's not helpful, you come up with something helpful and help me to be helpful. Um, there's not, part of it, there's just no getting around some of the technical material that you sort of have to think about in order to address this. It's about the term the virgin. You may not be aware, but today there's uh, a lot of folks saying, ah, this really shouldn't say virgin, it just should say the young woman. The older translations have virgin, but the, the newer crew of, uh, I guess, theologians, you should say, um, they wanted to say, no, nah, we want to try to be more honest with the Hebrew. And the Hebrew word used here, translated virgin, really doesn't mean virgin, but it means something else. It means simply something more generic. Something that you really can't put a behold in front of. Just a young woman. Now Matthew uses a word that he translates from the Hebrew. We believe that Matthew was reading the Hebrew as well as the Septuagint. And he uses a word in the Greek called Parthenon. This is where things will be a bit technical. The Hebrew word, and we'll just go through this, in the Hebrew text, written about 700 B.C. by Isaiah, preserved in the Masoretic text, which through various means has been demonstrated to be 99.99% pure. The Hebrew text for this word virgin is Alma. Right? And the argument is Alma simply means young woman. Around 150 B.C., or some roughly 500 years after Isaiah, somebody translated the Hebrew into Greek of Isaiah. So there's a copy of the Hebrew that says Alma, and then there's the Greek translation, and there's no Alma in the Greek, obviously. It's a different language. And so they said, well, you know, I get to this word Alma, and I am going to use the Greek word Parthenon. And the Greek word Parthenon means specifically virgin. Now this happened in 150 B.C., 200 years before Matthew. Matthew was not the first one to translate this Hebrew word Alma into the Greek word Parthenon. In about 65 A.D., some 200 years after the Septuagint was translated, we don't know by whom, by the way, here is this Greek word that Matthew uses, Parthenon. And Parthenon, again, is a Greek word that specifically means 
what we would think and how we would use things, it means virgin. All right. Now, <clears throat> of course, the challenge with this is that people will say, no, Alma means young woman. And Matthew should have used, and the translator of the Greek Septuagint 150 BC should have used the Greek word neonis, which just simply means young woman. And so they're trying to say that, well, you know, the, 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 Sep, the Septuagint's a little sloppy in its word usage, which isn't true. <laughs> there, there, may, there may be some unevenness within the Septuagint. Um, <clears throat> And then they say that, well, Matthew just used the Septuagint blindly and did not intelligently try to think this through. And again, I'm trying to understand how they know all this when they weren't there. This is all conjecture. Remember, how did Satan start? Has God... How does Satan take something that's really clear... In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Something as simple and as plain as you can get. And all of a sudden, turn it into a philosophical debate as to what it really means. How does he do that? And he does it through the mechanism of skepticism. Poking at something and questioning something and doubting something so much to where your head starts spinning. And that's what these folks are doing here. And so let's see if we can sort of straighten this out. And the reason I'm going this is because you all are going to be confronted with this. One of these days in talking to someone, you're going to come across a person like Gwen and I came across some months ago at a Thanksgiving supper, in which we encountered this man. He was probably about 55 years old. Um, kind, of an, kind of an interesting guy. He was a warehouse manager. And we're there talking with him, and after Thanksgiving dinner... Somehow the gospel is mentioned and we get from him something totally unexpected. This fellow is a radical atheist and I guess he spends night and day finding places in the Bible that he can study for months and months so that he can trip Christians up on something they've just casually read. Well, he's studied it to the bone and he's going to cast all this doubt on and I'm sitting there in this conversation like, this is Thanksgiving, I'm over at somebody's house, and I've got this radical atheist telling me all this stuff. So I, sat, I, I put Gwen on him. She straightened him out. <laughs> but see, the thing about this guy that was, was interesting, just to see in person, because you encounter this on the internet, right? You encounter it in blogs, things like that. People who just have all this seemingly intellectual ability to debate you, and they're like, they're going deeper down rabbit holes than you ever imagined anyone could. Well, here I had this guy in person. And I thought, well, here's a fellow who clearly, number one, says there is no God, says he doesn't believe in God, thinks it's his mission to convince Christians that they're, that they're you know, believing in fables. So he does not spend his days worrying about how he's doing with the Lord. He doesn't spend his days reading a whole Bible, trying to understand it in its, in its fullness and in its integrated reality. He doesn't spend his days praying, that's for sure. 
He doesn't have to pursue the things that the average Christian has to pursue. He can go and pick a biblical subject or a biblical passage, and he can just sit there and debate it and research it and do everything he can and find every way to trip Christians up. And he becomes an expert in this very small little spot in the Bible. But if you happen to go by there, <clears throat> it's called like, you know, like a black hole. A black hole has an event horizon. That is, once you get this close to the black hole, you're going in and that's it. You're cooked. You're, you're just going in. And if you get by his event horizon, man, he's going to suck you down the tubes of his years of study on things you never even knew existed. And so this is when you hear crazy stuff going on or crazy attempts to try to uh, trip up the Bible or question the Bible. This is where it comes from, people like this. And so these people will try to question this word Alma. I can imagine getting to a discussion about it. I'm sure he's, I mean, he knew Hebrew. This guy was like, the Hebrew, he's quoting Hebrew and stuff. This guy was sharp as a tack. I'm like, gosh, Gwen really better get on him because I'm not doing real well here. Um, <clears throat> and in the end, it was simple to address him. He made the statement. <clears throat> he said, you can't know God. And there is no God. And Gwen and I both basically kind of chimed in. So here's what we're sure about. We're sure that you don't know God. You say you don't know God. And you say that you don't think God exists. But you don't know if we don't know God. You can say that about yourself, and that's true. But you can't say that about us, me and Gwen. Because we know the true and living God. All you can be sure about is that you don't know God. He did not know what to do with that. <clears throat> Thankfully. <clears throat> Ended the evening well, at least on that one. So Alma. What does Alma mean? Does Alma mean young woman or does Alma mean virgin? So let's work through some things in the English language that help us to see sort of a parallel. And it should be actually pretty simple in the end. When we use the word virgin, we mean a person who has never had sexual relations with someone. <clears throat> and as I normally do, Google does have some uses, even though they're you know, ruining the entire earth. At least you get, to get a few advantages from them. And they had in this definition some synonyms, chaste, celibate, and an interesting word that I hadn't heard in a long time, maiden and maidenly. Anybody use that word in recent days? You haven't heard it unless you're like, you know, watching movies out of the 18, or time periods of the 1800s. There's this word maiden. So I thought, ah, that word maiden is actually a good word. So I went and looked up maiden. And it means a girl or a young woman, especially an unmarried one. All right? So we have in the English language a term that specifically deals with the topic of virginity. And it's you either are or you aren't a virgin. That's the topic, that's the issue, that's the qualification, that's the characteristic, one characteristic alone. But then there's this word maiden. And a maiden has a significance of what? Is it just somebody who's a virgin? Or is it more general? Kind of like Alma, a little more general. And does it have some specific content to it, such as, 
I don't think you would say that Steve was a maiden. Okay? Why? Because a maiden must be what? Okay. I don't think you would say that Gwen is a maiden. Why? She's married. Exactly. And a maiden, you tend to think, is going to be what? Although it's used, you know, sometimes as a, you know, an older person. But generally, you think of a maiden as what? A young girl. So in the general consciousness of at least traditional English, when you say someone's a maiden, you're saying they're not married, and it used to be you assumed, therefore, they were sexually pure and that they were young, and that they were pretty and ready to get, find some young man. You know, all the romance part about it attaches to it. But it's really a good word, isn't it? Very descriptive. What does it focus on? Virginity or young woman of marriageable age who isn't married but probably wants to get married, and we've got a lot of romance that we can work out here, hopefully, and get that process done. Check that box. Check that box of romance off. So you see what this word is. It's a general term. It's not a specific word for virginity, but when you think of it, you think that virginity is part of it, don't you? At least in a more ideal world. Does that make sense? So if you were to say, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, you'd go, wow. But also, wouldn't it be almost like a maiden shall conceive and bear a son? If you heard that, wouldn't you be going, well, wow, a maiden conceived. You know, she's not married. Usually not supposed to happen. You'd wonder how that, how that came about. So if you start <clears throat> dealing with the terminology in the Hebrew, there's this term in the Hebrew, betulah, which we would say would mean that one characteristic, single, single issue word, is someone a virgin or not. Now, it is about females, but it's just generally, are they a virgin or not? That's the question. Not are they female or not. That's kind of assumed, but are they a virgin or not? So there's a word for that, bet you law. Isaiah could have used it, but didn't. But then there's this general word, Alma, which is like our word, maiden, which is bigger in scope. It's a young woman who is unmarried and assumed to be pure. That's what the word Alma means. And so again, virgin just points to one specific characteristic, virginity. Alma points to several characteristics. And virginity is accommodated in the term. So if you say someone is, here you've got someone who's quiet or loud or short or tall or big, thick or thin or whatever, there's all these characteristics you can say about a person, but if you say they're a maiden, what have you said about them? They are, number one, they're what? Number two, they're young and they're unmarried. In an ideal world, in the world the way it ought to be, that means they're a virgin. So, what we get at is this. Well, here's a sort of a, a statement, try to capture it. By the way, trying to come to conclusions about this, I read a number of 
places, and it's not as simple and easy as one would think when it's actually in the end a simple and easy issue. But here's a quote from Jews for Jesus. I always go to them, by the way. Do you, go, do you go to them particularly for the Old Testament? They're pretty cool. Also, now there's Jews for Judaism. I'm like, okay, there's their, their nemesis. <clears throat> but Jews for Jesus. In the few verses where Alma appears, these guys know the Old Testament, the word clearly denotes a young woman who is not married but is of marriageable age. Although Alma does not implicitly denote virginity, it is never used in Scripture to describe a young, presently married woman. Never in Scripture does Alma ever point to any female who is married. It's interesting, the betulah, the Hebrew word for specifically virgin, is used in Joel, where it talks about women who are mourning like virgins, but they are clearly widows. Betu law is used of women who are widows. Now, they're not virgins. But they are those who presently have no man in their life. So this idea that betu law specifically means virgin, only and ever means virgin, and if that's what Isaiah meant, that's what it should be, the scriptures do not demonstrate that. So when Isaiah picks this term by the Holy Spirit, Alma, it is clearly in Isaiah's mind, and therefore in the mind of the Holy Spirit, a word to denote a female who is young and is not presently married and assumed to be chaste and pure. So I bet you law designates a virgin, and Alma accommodates virginity. Either word can be used of a virgin. It is legitimate for the Septuagint in 150 BC to translate Alma by Parthenon. There is no reason to not do that. Although today's crop of important theologians, they're not going to class them in, in conservatism, but they say, oh, no, no, he, he couldn't have used Parthenon. That's, that's loose. Like, no, it's very legitimate. It was legitimate for Matthew in the New Testament to use Parthenon, to say that a virgin shall conceive. A virginal young maiden conceived, that is the message of Isaiah 7.14. And that is the fulfillment in Matthew 1.18 and following. So I hope that might be helpful. Some of you kind of got lost. I get it. But I have to go over it because it is an issue that is so utterly challenged in our day. Now, in reading material on this, you know, how should we translate? Can we really say that Isaiah 7.14 was talking about a virgin when it used Alma? In the midst of all those discussions and debates and everything, there's been some interesting things put forward. And sometimes you're like, gosh, you were doing so good until you said this. <clears throat> Some of them will say, and it's sort of popular to say, because apparently there's big debates about the virgin birth in our day. I don't get out much, so I don't know 
what happens out there until I go to look at something specifically. But because there's these debates, people are starting to say, well, you know, God could have brought Jesus into the world through another means than the virgin birth. The virgin birth was just an option. You ready for that one? What's your reaction to that? That the virgin birth was but an option among many for God to bring a Savior into the world. Hopefully, the first thing you'll say is like, well, wait a minute, there's some requirements for this Messiah. The first requirement is he's got to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. That this Messiah is going to be the seed of who? The woman. Eve. Isn't that what all the genealogies are about? To say God could have done it another way kind of makes the genealogies to be, well, gosh, Lord, you just drug us through all these genealogies and you could have done it an easier way. Are you serious? I think when the people say this, that God could have had another option, could have brought Jesus into the world as Messiah another way, I, I just don't, they're just not thinking, I guess. Because the first qualification of Messiah, the first promise, is that this Messiah, this Savior, this one who is going to undo the works of the devil, must be of the seed of the woman. He must have the chromosomes of Eve. Does that make sense? Now, how are you going to get those chromosomes? You can't just be chromosomes like Eve. It's got to be chromosomes in continuity with, in connection with Eve. Genealogies. And if we read Isaiah 9, 6, he must also be the mighty God. And if we start thinking things through, we go, well, he can't be fallen in the first Adam, can he? So he's got to be the seed of the woman, but he can't be fallen. He's got to be the seed of the woman, but he can't be in Adam. Because that's all our problem. That's why we're a mess, because we're in Adam. We're conceived by procreation in Adam. And we get Adam's record at Adam's heart. That's our big problem. So this Messiah can't have that to his account. Messiah can't be created directly from the dust because then there's no continuity with the chromosomes of Eve. So exactly what are all these other options these people are talking about? There's four or five commentators that usually I'm, I'm like, these are guy, go-to guys, and I'm like, are you kidding? You're saying this. It's being plastered on the internet to where the average Christian now who doesn't study things a lot normally, they got too much going on in their life. It's not their calling to be a Bible teacher. And they're hearing from what they consider to be credible Bible teachers out there. And it's probably being taken up a lot. God could have done it another way, but he chose the virgin birth. And you got to think the reason people are saying that is because that they think that the virgin birth is a stumbling block somehow. And it's not. 
There's a Hebrew word for maiden called Alma. Pretty easy to do, isn't it? Pretty easy to state, isn't it? Then there's another item, a little easier to deal with, is that the virgin birth is derived from pagan myths. That in the first century, there were a lot of myths going around about God's being born and things like that. And it's partly true. There were a lot of them. What constitutes a lot, I'm not sure. 10, 20, 200. But there are enough to say that there were a number of them. But if you start to examine them and start to compare them side by side, which the atheists we talk to, I'm sure, would never let us do. I tried to get him to compare some of his statements and he wouldn't. He wouldn't let you go down any road he couldn't answer because he knew he couldn't answer. So he wasn't going to go down that road. Kind of like the abortion argument. We're not going to talk about life because if we talk about life, we're going to lose. So we're going to talk about choice. And so when people will come and tell you that the virgin birth has just, you know, been borrowed from pagan myths, that's just, uh, like, I don't know, totally invalid. The only possibilities are Zeus or some other mythological god having intercourse with another goddess or some person on earth. It's gross, it's carnal, it's evil. And when you put it side by side with the gospel, there's absolutely no comparison whatsoever. So always be wary of somebody questioning Christianity with generalities and making these statements about things like this that they don't know anything about, they haven't researched. They just took up somebody's word for it and they're passing it on. So there's no real comparison. And when you look at the gospel accounts, everything about them is Jewish. Can you imagine Luke 1 and 2 being borrowed from a pagan myth? Really? Are you serious? Luke 1 and 2 is full of what? Old Testament language and description and concept and ideation. There's just no way that you can get a pagan myth rooted in Zeus or some other mythological set of beings and come up with, let's see, nothing but, is bibli- but what is biblical statement. Oh, wait a minute. I guess Luke got his material from where? The Old Testament. And, oh, by the way, Matthew, what is he quoting? Is he quoting a Greek pantheon statement from Odysseus or somebody? Or is he quoting Isaiah 7, 14? So the idea, any idea that somehow the virgin birth has been derived from pagan myths is utterly and completely, and there's no words for it, how completely and utterly foolish it is. It has zero merit. Less than zero, if it would work. So, behold the virgin. The virgin is a clear statement. It is there in Isaiah. It is here in Matthew. 
And remember again that someone translated Alma Virgin 200 years before Matthew did. Behold the virgin. The virgin will be with child, and as I've mentioned a number of times, there will be a true conception and there will be a normal gestation because Jesus is a true human being. In 1 John, what are the two errors that are the, the grievous errors, so to speak, theologically, that you can fall into? You can, number one, deny the Father and the Son as he states in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the eternal word was made flesh. The eternal word became the Son, was the Son, is the Son. If you deny that relationship, that eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, then you've denied the gospel. The second thing you can deny theologically in 1 John is that the Son was a true man, was a true, full human being. Whosoever denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is the liar. And so this idea that she shall be with child in this description of this normal conception, well, not normal conception, true conception and normal gestation is vital to the recognition and understanding of the person of Jesus as a full human being. She'll be with child and she shall bear a son Again, this has been declared 732 years before. We can actually date, by the way, Isaiah 714. Very interesting. You, can, you know the year that that prophecy was given. I'm going to bear a son. God's going to bring this to pass. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, and here is the only real departure you have from Isaiah 714 there it says, she shall call his name Emmanuel, and here it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Not a big departure, just a little bit of difference. They shall call his name Emmanuel. When you translate Emmanuel, it means God is with us. And of everything that Isaiah could have, or rather Matthew could have explained, he could have said, behold, the virgin shall be with child. Let me tell you why. Alma can be translated Parthenon. He, he, he could have done that. You see, this which translated means is kind of like we would today put it where? Something like this. Down in a footnote, right? This is Matthew's way of doing a footnote. Here is this name, Emmanuel. And I want you to understand what it means. But he's writing to a Jewish audience. I mean, surely they understood, right? I mean, we're a bunch of Gentiles and we know what it means. So why this focus? To an audience that generally would already understand the translation. And I submit to you that the reason he does this is because this God with us, of all that is in this prophecy of Isaiah, there's something he wants us to pay attention to more than the rest. 
It's all from God. It's all true. It's all amazing. It's all part of the behold. It's all within that capsule of behold. But this is the part that in some way is the deepest, the richest, the most significant, the capstone, the culmination, the purpose, the reason, whatever words you want to use. And what's been in the foreground? The virgin shall be with child. And we're going to get from this virgin birth an Emmanuel. An Emmanuel like no other Emmanuel in the history of the universe. You see, Emmanuel could mean, well, God is with us. Don't we say, hey, the Lord bless you. If we were even more sort of rooted in Bible language, we would say, the Lord be with you. That would be Emmanuel. God with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Just a difference in pronouns. See, Emmanuel could simply mean God is acting on our behalf. God is personally for us. God is generally with us. There's the favor of the Lord upon us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. The Shema. But the context in which this occurs, and it's what Matthew singles out, is this God with us is not just simply God being for us. It is God being with us through a virgin birth of a child. God being with us in a way that he has never been with anybody or any group of people before in the history of the world. It can only mean one thing. That God is not just simply for us. But God is personally with us in the person of this child. God with us. We know that this is what Matthew is saying because we see it so plainly in another gospel. It's actually plain in Matthew, but you tend not to see it. You tend to sort of bypass what he's getting at. But in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. And when we saw him walk around Galilee and preach and teach and do miracles, we saw through the shell of a human being into the core of who he is. We saw his glory, not just simply as a good man or a great man or a prophet. We saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father. 
He is unique. And He is God, personally, Himself, with us. Paul grasps this, and Paul presents this in Colossians 2.9, and this is found in a whole, all over the New Testament. I started thinking, okay, what passage is in Scripture? I'm like, oh, I got about 50 here. Only got a couple minutes. Paul grasped this. See, people say, oh, you know, the rest of the New Testament doesn't talk about the virgin birth. No? Really? Then tell me what Paul's talking about here. He doesn't talk about the virgin birth as an actual detailed narrative event, but he's certainly talking about the reality of what it produced, isn't he? This virgin birth produced God with us, that is, in him all the fullness of Godhood, deity, dwells in a body. God with us. Another place, when he's laying out to Timothy how to have a good church, he says there's this common confession going around in the first century, and it's trustworthy. People were doing summaries, summarizing the gospel, and here's one of those summaries. Great is the mystery of godliness, he who is revealed in the flesh, God with us. Vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Sort of the first systematic theology, if you will. Grudem didn't get there first. Someone in the first century did. We could go through all the passages, and I hope those passages are speaking to you. Philippians chapter 2, being the form of God, he humbled himself, took the form of a man. If that's not the virgin birth, then what is? Is there some option that we missed? But there's another sense in which God is with us, and it's a sense that we should always grasp and always rejoice and always hold close to our bosom. God is not only personally with us in the person of the eternal Son made flesh among us through this virgin birth, but God's with us because God likes to hang out with us. I remember when we had our Bible study in the sort of revival that kicked off the church there for a few weeks, we had the theme, Hanging Out with God. I don't know if some of you remember that. I thought I was really cool that I came up with that little phrase, by the way. I thought I was really hip. I was really up with good things. But we were hanging out with God. How do you hang out with God? And here's the first how to hang out with God. God hangs out with us. God loves human beings. Jesus loves people. The whole point of the gospel is to present God 
deeply engaged with sinners in the person of Jesus. That's the point of the Gospels. We're to watch him walk on earth and talk to people and deal with people and work with people and help people and fix people and reprove people. As a computer programmer, I could spend days, probably even weeks if it happened, and not talk to a human person. Be really glad the Lord is not a programmer. Okay? He doesn't love computer screens. He loves people. He loves interacting with people. He loves talking to people. He loves engaging people. And our whole point in the gospel, remember this, is not to tell people a theological structure of the gospel while we do that because we're communicating truth and truth is rational. But in the gospel, we are presenting Jesus Christ himself to someone. That's why to say Jesus died for your sins, you've got to believe that Jesus died for your sins, that's kind of invalid. Not because, you know, of definite atonement or something like that. Because that's just not how the Gospels present things, and it's certainly not how the book of Acts presents things. The book of Acts says you are to believe on him who died for sinners, not believe a doctrine, a certain doctrine of the atonement. You are saved by getting into connection with Jesus. You are saved by embracing the Savior himself. And when you embrace the Savior, you get everything he has and is. You get his atonement. You get the Holy Spirit. You get forgiveness of sin. You get newness of life. You get a resurrection. You get eternity. But it's in him. Isn't that what Paul said? In him dwells all the fullness of deity bodily, and in him you're made full. We present a person to the world. And we present him who is God with us. Him who loves sinners. Him who died for sinners. Him who rose for sinners. Him who is the great mediator of sinners. We present the Lord Jesus Christ. We present God with us. Paul, he just had this in his heart. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. This is another one of those first century theological statements that you could start to weave into a systematic theology, if you will. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, how did he come into the world? By a virgin birth. Christ came through that virgin birth into the world for one reason and one reason alone, to save sinners. That's what that virgin birth is about. God is with us. He came to save. Jesus said, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to what? Myself. That where I am, you will be, we will be together. God with us forever. God loves people, do you? That's the challenge when in this politically politicized culture that we live in, where everybody has been so stinking polarized and the love of the many is waxing cold, including Christians, including mine. 
I probably told you before, but I'll say it again. I know I've watched too much Tucker Carlson when I start not liking people. I'm off in the weeds when that happens. I'm too worried about this world when that happens. God loves people, do I? Do you? God with us. One of those final things in the book of Revelation, that final set of statements that we all, once we get them sorted out, love. And I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, with men. God is with people. God with us. And he will dwell among them, God with us, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, God with us three times. Well, quickly, Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I mean, I guess you'd wake up too after a dream like that. You'd wake up too after recognizing, wow, what an answer. Although it had a price tag for Joseph. Joseph was going to die an early death because God had to move him out of the way so there would be no confusion about who Jesus' father was. I'm sure Joseph was okay with that. I'm sure he's certainly okay with it now. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded. God spoke, he obeyed. Christians, keep life simple. God tells you to do something, do it. Not hard. Don't let the devil make it hard. Don't let your sin make it hard. Don't get all confused. Don't start philosophizing. Don't start trying to get to the edge of, you know, the cliff of the world. Get as close as that. Obey the Lord. Stay away from the cliff. And he took Mary, his wife, took her to his heart, took her to his home, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. That word until doesn't necessarily mean that after that she wasn't. Doesn't necessarily mean that after that she remained. Until doesn't tell you anything. What does tell you something is Jesus had lots of brothers and sisters. So I kind of think that, you know, the perpetual virginity of Mary is a myth. There's Mary DNA in the world today. And he called his name Jesus. Matthew closes this, what we call a chapter, this section, with the point of it all. Jesus was called the Savior because that's who he is. So, kept you a little long just to move through that, be done. Didn't want to have to spend a half a message here trying to go between messages. Believe on the Lord Jesus and present the Lord Jesus. Do everything you can to have God with you, to be a, have a heart and a mind and a life where the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in your life. It's just not worth it. What are you trading in for God being with you? Put that to death today. Determine you're changing that today. And just thank the Lord that God is with you. See, the Lord never promised us rose garden, never promised us a some happy life. He never promised us that we'd be out of trials, never t- promised us that we wouldn't have crosses to bear, that we wouldn't have persecutions. As a matter of fact, he promised us we'd have lots of those. But what he did promise was that he would always be with us. God with us. That is what opens the gospel of Matthew, and that is what closes the gospel of Matthew. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came down to be with us in your Son. What an amazing thing. And we just ask again, Lord, you just write this on all our hearts. 
Lord Jesus, you are with us. We will, Lord, order our lives by that, that the eternal God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the eternal God is with us. What an awesome blessing. It is indescribable. There are not enough words and there's not enough time. That's why there's eternity because it's going to take that long to fully appreciate what it means that you, the living God, have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world and brought us to him in real faith. Lord, let us be a body of believers that treasures that. Lord, it's important to know truth and deal with the issues of the world and defend the truth. Those are all real things, but in the end, the bottom line, the heart and soul of things is knowing you, that you are with us. So Lord, we just pray that. Do in our lives whatever it takes that you will dwell with us in just a present way and that we will be, Lord, always truly rejoicing in you because we know how great a blessing this is. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.